From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Illinois lawmakers are on break now, but there is already major legislation to deal with when they return to Springfield in early January, a proposal that would ban so-called assault weapons. It's spurred in part by the mass shooting this summer in Highland Park. Whether it happens during the uh, lame duck session, which I know is the expectation, or it happens during regular session is, uh, I mean, it's important that we do it as fast as possible, there's no doubt. But I just want to be clear that uh, our aim is to get it done in the first half of the year. Well, no action was taken in the fall session on the issue of guns, but Governor J.B. Pritzker made it clear he wants lawmakers to take up a ban on what are often called assault weapons, as well as banning high-capacity magazines and prohibiting most people under 21 from illegally owning a gun. We'll talk about that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. And along with us, we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. Joining us today, we have Jerry Nowicki. He's the Bureau Chief for Capital News Illinois. And Jerry, always good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me. So Jerry, let me start. Uh, we'll get into this discussion on guns in just a bit, but wanted to wrap up a few things that happened this week. A uh, bit of a house cleaning, I guess you could say, from the fall session. One of those, not surprising, the governor signing the what's uh, known often as the Safety Act, a controversial piece of criminal justice legislation. And some changes were made in the fall session. The governor signed those into law this week. Refresh our memory on what lawmakers approved in the session what some refer to as tweaks to this law. Yeah, it was probably a little bit more substantial than tweaks. Uh, the, the provision that was amended uh, last uh, month or this month, whatever it was, in the veto session was the provision uh, pertaining to the end of cash bail, which will take effect January 1st. There were a lot of inconsistencies throughout the bill, which was sort of hastily passed. So that left, left some areas where the language need to be tightened up and clarified. Uh, one of those was that the fact that uh, the new law will apply to those charged uh, after 2022. So anyone charged in 2023 would be subject to these uh, pretrial detention guidelines um, that, that are overhauled from previous law. And then the other thing it did was sort of um, added more offenses uh, to the categories in which a judge can uh, mandate pretrial detention um, once the new law takes effect. So um, there are more offenses now, even ones that are, if the person is eligible for probation, there are still circumstances or charges uh, if they've committed that they can be held for pre-trial um, while they await their trial. So uh, that's th that's kind of the main things that happen. Um, Republicans weren't really, they, Republicans, a lot of them acknowledge that, you know, this is a positive step forward. They, none of them voted for it because they said it didn't go far enough and judges should have uh, ultimate discretion to uh, keep someone um, held pre-trial no matter what the charge is, but uh, that's ultimately not what passed. Um, there could be more changes uh, as we see this bill take effect in January and the state reacts to some of the problems or whatever else happens uh, when it takes effect. But um, right now, that's sort of what the bill does. Yeah, and Charlie, Republicans weren't really involved in these negotiations on these changes. Uh, does that signal to you what the working relationship is going to be going forward? 
I think it, it will depend on the issue. Uh, one of the things I think we're also going to talk about momentarily is the unemployment insurance changes. And that was a very bipartisan agreement. But on this particular legislation, the Republicans sort of as a campaign strategy uh, went all out to declare that when this bill takes effect January 1st, it's going to be the end of the world. The jail doors are going to open. Criminals are going to flood out. Uh, it won't be safe to step outside your front door because there'll be some uh, violent offender waiting there for you. And they really, I thought, exaggerated the impact. And so it was kind of hard for them to walk it back. One of the things I thought was interesting is that some of the law enforcement groups, and Jerry, you can correct me if I'm wrong, some of the law enforcement groups were neutral on the final version that lawmakers passed what, last week. And they had been vociferously opposed to the original legislation as it stood. But after these modifications and changes were enacted, they declared their neutrality. They did not actually come out and, and uh, lobby against it. So I, I think on an issue like this, you're probably not going to get many Republicans to join the Democrats, particularly when, as I say, the whole campaign was based around how horrible this, this law was. I think one of the things to watch is, I believe it'll be, what, next week or the week after, there is actually a case going to be held or heard in Kankakee County Circuit Court, lawsuits brought by the majority of the state's attorneys in Illinois, challenging the original law on a number of grounds, including constitutional grounds. Now, whether or not this latest enactment, which has been signed by Governor Pritzker, will enable the law's defenders to come before the, the judge and say, well, look, the state's attorneys are complaining about what the law was like before. Now, here's what the law is. So their arguments are moot. So that'll be something to watch. Yeah, Jerry, I, I think the thing that stood out to me this week was not much fanfare when the governor signed this into law. It was a press release, uh, no ceremony, even though this has gotten so much attention uh, through the uh, past several months during the campaign. Was, were you surprised at that, that the governor uh, did this sort of low-key signing? No, it wasn't surprising because the whole uh, uh, sort of public uh, persona from the governor on this was that this is a clarification. This is still all of the major tenets of the original bill are going into effect. So they're not making drastic uh, transformative changes to the law. They're just tightening something that laid the groundwork for the types of changes um, that, that this is still going to enact. So uh, I think he said at a news conference the following day that he just wanted to get it signed quickly to send the message to the courts, to send the message to whoever needs to see it, that these changes are now the law. And um, and I think it, it was important for him to have done that, judging by the level of just wild, wildly different interpretations that different intelligent people have made on what the language did. So now we have clear language, um, which hopefully will add off some of the things. In regards to the lawsuit Charlie had mentioned, a lot of the points in that lawsuit weren't necessarily about the substance of the Safety Act, but the fact that they jammed so many things into one bill and passed it 
as quickly as they did. It was sort of like a process type lawsuit regarding the single subject laws and, and the fact that, you know, uh, there are laws, there are rules um, that govern the house that maybe this, this didn't follow. That, that's always a, a high burden for someone to prove. And I don't know of anyone that's successfully done it before the Supreme Court. So that'll be interesting to note. Um, I think we'll still certainly follow that case as it as it goes along. But Charlie's also correct that the law enforcement groups came to a point of neutrality because it did inch the bill forward in terms of tightening up some of the vague language which law enforcement viewed actually as kind of a grave threat to their, their officers discharging the law. Yeah, and Charlie, this for people that don't follow legislation and, and the process that much, uh, this is not uncommon for a big piece of legislation, a big radical change in law to need some fine-tuning in some cases. And maybe even after it takes effect, this is before it takes effect, but even afterward, that can still happen. I mean, we see that all the time. Oh, yeah. If you think about it, I don't have the the total tally for this current legislative session. Um, I'm too lazy to look it up, honestly. But my guess is there's probably been something like 10,000 bills introduced the vast majority of those are bills that amend existing statute as opposed to creating an entirely new law. And that reflects what you said, Sean, as laws become effective and people see how they play out in real life, they come back and fix them. And I think that's basically what this new version of the Safety Act that was signed into law by the governor, that's what it does. The, the law enforcement people raised a lot of points. I thought it was a lot of hyperbole, but some of the things they mentioned were unclear in the bill. And I think this clears it up. So in, in my mind, it's not surprising that we've had a, a trailer bill. As a matter of fact, I think we've had several before this to clarify other parts of the law. That happens all the time. Well, Jerry also signed this week was this uh, this agreement between labor and business that the governor had helped put together, and this is re- revolving around the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. I know you covered the announcement of that agreement, the governor signing it into law. So again, refresh our minds on what is actually in this piece of legislation. Yes, yeah, so there are two pieces of legislation regarding the Employment Trust Fund fix. One of them to allocate $1.8 billion will still need to clear, I believe it's the House, when lawmakers return in January. There's there's verbal commitment, certainly, um, that that bill will pass, um, but that's sort of the backbone of the plan. And the fact is that if the, uh, the, the fund had become $4.5 billion in the negative uh, amid the pandemic as unemployment had risen so high. Um, and previously, the state used uh, $2.7 billion from federal COVID relief funds to pay down part of that deficit, and then another $450 million um, from the fund's balances later went to pay it down. So it left it somewhere around $1.4 billion. So what this payment will do is it'll erase the deficit. It'll put a balance in there of $450 million. Um, And what that does uh, for the employers who pay into that fund for the unemployment um, benefits to workers is uh, as long as there would have been a negative balance there, it would have driven 
the employer contributions up year after year after year. So what it does now is it expands the employee tax base for which employees will have to pay um, the unemployment benefits. But what it does is it will erase about $915 million in tax increases that were anticipated to have occurred over the next five or so years um, because it erases that balance. And bipartisan agreement, Charlie, you've talked about this uh, when this was first announced. You think it's a good deal. Yeah, I do. And as I mentioned earlier on, on earlier shows, it's sort of like a, a return to the old practice on controversial issues where the interested parties would sit down and negotiate a settlement. And in, in the case of workers' compensation and unemployment insurance, it was always the business community and organized labor. And they would sit down and basically cut a deal, and then they would present it to the General Assembly, which would ratify it with little or no debate. The argument being, well, if the folks who are most involved and most affected by this think that this is a good idea, who are we to question their judgment? And so that's what occurred here. And personally, I would like to see it happen more frequently on a lot of these issues, bring the, the folks with disagreements and different points of view, get them together and have them work something out rather than have stuff jammed through by one party or the other. And it's interesting, Jerry noted that there are two bills involved on this unemployment insurance agreement. And that goes back to one of the process issues that we discussed earlier with respect to the Safety Act. The state constitution says you can't do appropriations and substantive legislation in the same bill. So the bill that governor signed was the substantive change in the law that puts all of these provisions in that Jerry mentioned. The actual money to pay for it is in another bill that passed the Senate and it's in the House. And when the House comes back after the first of the year, the House will pass that bill that basically just says this money goes uh, into, to, it, it'll, it'll go in, into pay off what we owe the feds and we'll set up this additional loan that will be paid off over 10 years, interest-free. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois. Governor Pritzker came out this week and urged lawmakers to get on board and pass an assault weapons ban and other changes to gun laws. He's been consistent on this, Charlie. He, has, he was vocal after the shooting in Highland Park over the summer, so it's not a surprise per se, but he does seem to be making this his main focus as lawmakers head into the new year. Uh, any surprise with that, that he seemed to be you know, making such a big statement? In fact, he even talked about possibly trying to do something in the uh, upcoming lame duck session soon after lawmakers return in January. Oh, no, he's, it, it's no surprise that he's endorsed uh, this plan and I think it was last week when he first made public comments on the bill that was that was introduced in the House shortly before the, the legislature adjourned the fall session. Uh, and he, he basically said that it was, I forget what the event was at which he was, it was a different event. He said that he, he favors the legislation, which is the, the House bill. And he said, and this is a quote, whether it happens during the lame duck session, which I know is the expectation, 
or it happens during regular session, it's important that we do it as fast as possible. There's no doubt. I just want to be clear that our aim is to get it done in the first half of the year. So he's made clear what his position is and assuming that the, the bill that ultimately passes, if it does pass and comes to his desk, he will sign it. Well, Jerry, you've been following this discussion on guns for some time now. What is the temperature of the legislature? And I know there are going to be some new members of the legislature as well coming up. But Democrats, they've got a, you know, they've got a lot of control there. They've had a lot of control in the past. We've not seen this get approved. What's to make someone think this is going to be the time? Yeah, so what we can uh, definitively say, I would say, or can extrapolate from the fact that it didn't pass in the veto session is that there is not a Democratic supermajority three-fifths majority that supports this. Otherwise, they would have had the votes to move it in November. So after January 1, all they're going to need is a simple majority. So they think they have that. Um, I think uh, there was a Representative Maura Hirschauer who had a similar assault weapons ban that languished for a long time. And then July 4th, shooting happened in Highland Park. And they got, I think it was over 50 co-sponsors. So what you're looking at now is, is just getting that remainder of the 60-vote uh, threshold to um, commit their support to something like this. Uh, now, the, the question will be, will there be members who want to moderate some of the uh, portions of the bill? I have no idea how that's going to play out. I know there are working groups that have been looking at this for a long time. They continue to look at it. Uh, Representative Bob Morgan from, I think he's from Chicago, has has filed the, or he might, uh, he wherever he's from, he, he represented Highland Park and was uh, walking in that Highland Park parade um, when that massacre happened. So um, it, it'll it'll just be interesting to watch how the Democrats play out. I don't, know that this will get Republican support. I don't know that it won't, but um, certainly the Democrats are probably counting their own votes at this point. And Charlie, if it got Republican support, it would have to come most likely from the suburbs. Yeah, this is one issue. This is probably of any issue. This is the one that is most regional and less partisan, at least from my experience of watching this stuff for, oh, what, a couple decades as a reporter. The idea of firearms in the Chicago area is gangbangers who can't shoot straight, killing little girls. The idea of guns in most of the rest of Illinois, certainly in, in, in central Illinois, southern Illinois, western Illinois, is you go deer hunting. And so the, despite their partisan label, lawmakers have always reflected that. And the split has always been sort of Chicago and suburbs versus the rest of Illinois. And so on this one, after the shooting in Highland Park, it really energized the gun control people. And as Jerry said, they will only need 60 votes in the House, 30 votes in the Senate. And if they do it in the lame duck session or if they do it in the new session, they have votes to spare. So I would expect that the handful of Democrats elected from outside the Chicago area, and there aren't that many, will probably vote no. 
and there's a possibility that some Republicans vote, may vote for it. As a matter of fact, there was a, 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 a proposal in 2018 that would have put a three-day waiting period to buying an assault tile weapon and would have banned their sale to people younger than 21. Uh, but Representative Jim Durkin of Western Springs, who was the outgoing House Republican leader, voted for it, as did State Senator John Curran of Downers Grove, who is going to be the new Senate Republican leader. So there was some support on the Republican side. And as I say, the Democrats can do it by themselves. They can give a pass to the people for whom it would be bad in future campaigns to have voted for any kind of gun control. But we'll see. As the Second Amendment people have said, whatever they pass, as soon as it's signed, will be in court. And I think it was the Rifle Association said, we're not even going to bother to testify. We're not going to bother to do any of that stuff. We'll see you in court. They're relying, of course, on the fact that ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, with its current makeup, has seemed to be very, very much in favor of expansive Second Amendment rights. Jerry, when it comes to the lame duck session, which is just a few days before the new General Assembly is sworn in, uh, just a few days in January, they'll be meeting in this this type of session is there really any likelihood, and even Pritzker seemed to sort of walk back the idea that it could get done that fast, is there any thought that, that we could see that? I think there's a hearing coming up on it soon, so at least they are making some progress on this legislation. Yeah, the hearing would be Monday, subject matter only, not voting. Uh, I believe it's subject matter only, just means they're not going to vote on advancing it. Uh, yeah, so when it comes to things passing in the General Assembly, I never write anything off because of the various methods they have to move something in one day um, by sort of circumventing the uh, three readings rules that govern the way things are supposed to pass. So yeah, I wouldn't write it off, uh, certainly for passing in the uh, lame duck session. All right. This is State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, along with Charlie Wheeler. And our guest this week is Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois. Jerry, uh, as we have just a few minutes left here, a little bit more housekeeping to talk about this week. We we knew what the numbers were going to be from the uh, recent election in November, but the state did certify the results this week. You covered that. What stood out to you uh, in the final tally? Yes, Susanna Mendoza received the most votes of any uh, politician in this election. That's our top troller. Uh, that's her third term, I believe, that she has been elected to, um, or the third election she's won, at least. Um, and uh, closely behind her was Tammy Duckworth. And then uh, from there, the Democrats all swept the statewide offices by wide margins. Yeah, Charlie, anything stood out to you? One of the things that, that I found interesting was that we had a, a pretty low turnout in fact, the State Board of Elections said it was the fourth lowest midterm turnout in the past 40 years. Only about 51% of registered voters actually went to the polls or voted by mail or at one of the early voting sites. Uh, four years ago, it was 57%. And they also reported 39% of the voters voted before Election Day, 18% by mail, 21% voting early in person. And 
one of the things I found interesting too was the question was posed, why would our turnout be so much lower than it would have been kind of historically? And Matt Dietrich, who's the spokesperson for the elections board pointed out there are now more eligible voters being registered automatically. Uh, anyone who renews their driver's license, gets a hunting or fishing license or state ID can register to vote if they haven't already. So he's speculating, maybe the fact that we've made it so much easier for people to register winds up with people being registered who aren't really that engaged in the process. So when it comes time to actually voting, they don't get around to it. Yeah. So it'll, he, he pointed out it'll probably be a few more elections before we can see if this is really true. But I found that interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. So the other, the other thing I'd note about that, though, is it, it, that's, it's a striking trend if you look back to 1982. But if you go back to 2006, uh, this is the second highest turnout in that 16-year span of midterm elections. So, I mean, it's, there's a general trend downward, but, you know, is it, have, have we crested at that bottom trend and are back on the way up? That's, that's a question to ask as well, I'd say. And Jerry, also the election, uh, just about a minute here left, the election saw some changes to the Illinois Supreme Court, and you've been following that as well. Uh, fill us in on what the court looks like now. Yeah, it's, it's diversified a lot. There's a 5-2 majority woman court at this point. Chief Justice Mary Jane Tice was sworn in uh, in October. Uh, and there are three black justices um, as well, which is the highest in the court. That's Scott Neville, Lisa Holder White, and Joy Cunningham. Uh, two of those have joined uh, after July of this year. So Certainly, there is a lot more diversity, and Democrats have expanded their majorities to a 5-2 majority as well. All right, time now for our notes from the field, and Charlie, we'll go to you first. Well, Illinois set a record in October, which is the most recent month for which the data is available, with more than $1 billion wagered on sports, and that's the highest monthly figure for Illinois sports bettors since we started doing this about a year or so ago and it's one of the highest monthly figures ever recorded anywhere in the u.s the casino sports books came out with 102 million dollars in revenue according to the gaming board and that generated in the month of october about 15 million dollars in state tax revenues and another million dollars or so for cook county government and the reason or the the suggestion is that the reason the handle was so high was because the NFL season was getting going. So was NBA, so was NHL. And they said that football was the most popular sport bet on with a handle of 358 million, followed by basketball and then tennis. Also a note this week, State Senator Jason Barrickman, he's a Republican from Bloomington, who just ran unopposed for another term in the primary and also won in the general election, says he's going to step down from the legislature. He's been there for 12 years. He says he wants to spend more time with his family. And Republican Party leadership will be able now to appoint someone to fill that vacancy. His district includes a large portion of central Illinois. Jerry, your note from the field. Yes, yeah, so the holiday displays are up at the Capitol. You have the menorah, the nativity scene, and a crocheted serpent sitting on crocheted apples and a book by Nicholas Copernicus about 
the uh, sun being the center of the universe, and that has been placed by the Illinois Satanic Temple. All right. Well, that's all of our time for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois. You can get a podcast of our show. It's available at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and don't forget to join us next time. been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.